What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Chris Stanton on the line, and he is a nuclear pharmacist. I didn't even know what that was. He reached out to me via email and started kind of talking about what it was in the world of nuclear pharmacy, and I'm like, I was just super intrigued because I'd never heard of it. I wanted to kind of dive deep into it and learn something, and that is exactly what we did with this podcast. The conversation was deep. I, I encourage you to just kind of sit tight, dive into it with us and not be intimidated by the information because we definitely go deep in some areas there but i think you'll find it incredibly fascinating we also deep dive into the coronavirus we talk about that i felt like he has a much deeper perspective and a better understanding of that entire you know medical field that niche that industry than i do i haven't really talked about the coronavirus on my platforms much so i wanted to take this as an opportunity to let him speak about it because he can speak much more educated on the matter than i can uh, so we talk about that, and we just talk about life in general and kind of some things that you can do to properly set yourself up to be proactively healthy going forward and not only benefit you, but your children, your offspring, the whole human race. So I really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I feel you will as well. Without further ado, sit back, relax, learn something from Chris Stanton. Live, Chris. How are you, man? All right, Rob. How are you? Doing wonderfully well. So, you reached out to me on an email, uh, I think, from my newsletter a couple weeks back, and we just kind of went down the rabbit hole about keto space, the industry, uh, the community, life in general, and you started talking about your profession as a nuclear pharmacist. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I got to get you on the podcast <laughs> and dive deep into this. So, let's do just that, man. Give me some background on you and kind of what brought you into this this space and what got you doing nuclear pharmacy right definitely uh so but but first before we start uh, i do work for a corporation and and i had to get permission to on here so say that any view or opinion that i say here is mine and mine alone and not that of my companies now that i have that little disclaimer out of the way let me jump in and let you know what exactly nuclear pharmacy is all right uh so nuclear pharmacy is literally the uh, drug industry, radio, just regular pharmaceuticals that are radioactive. Uh, we take uh, pharmaceutical agents and we label them with radioactive isotopes that are either used for diagnostic purposes or can be used for treatment. Uh, I would say around 80 to 85% of the industry is mostly on the diagnostic end, which means that our drugs are utilized by physicians to help diagnose diseases, not necessarily treat diseases in those 80 to 85% of the time. But there are those agents that we utilize that are used for various uh, therapeutic and other various diseases. So for example, cancer is an easy one. Uh, there, are, there are some agents that are out there that are utilized for cancer. Some are utilized for bone pain palliation um, so that's uh, to help individuals who have bone cancer and uh, who have extreme pain from that type of the cancer that's very, very detrimental. We have agents that help reduce the size and the pain associated with, that, with those type of cancers. Uh, we also range from uh, not necessarily cancer, but um, hyperthyroidism. You know, someone has an overactive thyroid and they can't, they can't uh, you know, cope with that. 
So we have um, radioisotopes that target and essentially kind of ob uh, obliterate the uh, the thyroid and um, helps save them that way. So, you know, but again, majority of the stuff is diagnostic. So we're helping uh, the physicians diagnose diseases. That's nuclear pharmacy in kind of like a nutshell. So um, from, how does that work, that, like from a, a diagnostic standpoint? Like, is this radioactive material just like lighting up when it when it comes to a specific pathway or how does that work from a molecular right. standpoint so, yeah so excellent excellent question so the the way you want to look at it is you want to think of the isotope or look at a picture it it's looking at the inside of a person without having to open up the person okay so you we inject the radioactive material now the unique thing about radioactivity is that you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. So that's one of the unique things about it, which make it really, really cool, but also can make it really, really dangerous, right? Depending on what type of isotope you're looking at or what type of radioactivity you're thinking of. Um, biggest, I mean, the one that everyone instantly thinks about when they think about radioactivity is Chernobyl and the disaster. And they had that HBO, I think, special on it, Chernobyl and all that. So that's the one thing that everyone thinks about. But that's just an extreme example. Um, we utilize it in medicine just about literally every day. People don't, a lot of people don't know about it. So what it really is doing is, again, you're lighting up the person from the inside out. Um, now, the person can't feel it. They can't taste it. They can't smell it. It really has uh, very small, like very minute ever uh, type of side effects, if there are any associated with uh, radiopharmaceuticals. What they do is they get an injection. And then they'll go underneath uh, a camera, okay? And this camera is then collecting the radioactivity that is emitting from the person's body at this point. So you literally injected this person with radioactive material that has associated drug with it. And the drug is going to circulate through the body and go to where the drug is designed to go, whether that be the heart, the lung, the liver, the bone, the muscles wherever it's associated and, and meant to go, it's going to go to those places and then it attaches and it's going to now emitting the radioactivity from it and from the person themselves. And those cameras are collecting that radioactivity and then transforming that data into a photograph. And that's how the physicians are then able to uh, take a look at from the inside of the person without having to literally open the person up. That's insane, man. How do you make the, the radioactive material so, like, organ-specific? Like, how do you train it to go to one body part versus another? So that is based on the drug manufacturer of the particular pharmaceutical agent. So there are, just like there are different drugs in a traditional pharmacy that uh, tackle, let's say, cholesterol or high blood pressure, we have agents that have been designed by drug companies that are designed to go to the heart, that are designed to go to the liver, that are designed to go to the lungs, so on and so on. Some are designed to go to the bone, okay? And what we utilize and what we do is we take the radioactive portion and combine it with that pharmaceutical agent, and now we've got like two agents combined to make one, and then that agent does its thing and goes. So I have students here that come from one of the local colleges. As a matter of fact, the college that I went to, uh, I, I, the current facility that I work at and that I manage, uh, I came to when I was a student 
uh, going through pharmacy school. And I just, I found this to be absolutely wild and cool. And since then, uh, I teach it to the students. I've kept up with the program and I teach students that come through the rotation just like I did. And the one way that I like to describe it to them, and it's kind of, it's, it's like sixth grade-ish, but it gets the picture pretty much, uh, you know, in your head as to what it re- really looking at. I want you to think of, and I want you and your audience to think of a, think of a dog, okay? Just think of a dog, and that dog is the drug, okay? That's the pharmaceutical agent, mm-hmm. okay? Now, I want you to think of a flashlight, okay? A flashlight, and now take that flashlight. That flashlight is the radioactivity, Okay? So I want now what we do is we take that flashlight and we take that dog and I'm going to take that flashlight. I'm going to put it on the the tail of the dog. Right. So now I'm, I've attached this flashlight to this dog and now the dogs, you know, got this flashlight just waving around. Now that we have that picture, think of the dog, dog's food, like the bowl of food. That's the receptor site of whatever organ that we're looking at. Okay. Think of that bowl of food as the receptor so the dog is now going to go to the bowl of food but since it's inside of a person the atmosphere has got to be dark right so now we're thinking of a black room we've got this flashlight that's waving all over the place but we know where it's going to go because the dog's going to use its nose to go to the bowl of food right so it's just going to know it knows where to go it's going to find its way over and then when it hits that bowl of food it's going to stay there wag its tail as it eats now the doc then takes the picture and can tell where the radioactivity is and where that dog is because it's it's gone to the receptor site and we can see that because of the flashlight, so we can locate it. So it's like a ver- that right there is like a very crude way of thinking on how everything operates, and that's the way I love to really teach the students that are just coming in that have no idea about this because you don't learn about nuclear pharmacy in pharmacy school, believe it or not, unless there's a specific program, or at least I didn't. Yeah, this this is all new to me for sure. So, is there like a specific set time to reach that bowl of food per se? Like all drugs and receptor sites are going to have the same time. So, once that injection's been made, you wait say twenty minutes across the board for whatever organ you're targeting, and then then you start taking the pictures based off of that light wagging around. Yeah. So, more or less, there is a, there is a time frame. Yeah. Um, it could be. You can wait 20 minutes. You can wait an hour. Um, there are some studies uh, that are done with um, what they go, what they do gastric motility studies. So with gastric motility, you're you're literally taking photos of food that's been uh, tagged with radioactive drugs, and you're you're watching it in different time frames go through the gastric system, and uh, literally trying to time how long it takes for the for the stomach to empty. So gastric emptying. Um, so there are, there are multiple ways. It all depends on the actual study and what you're looking for and how fast you need the material, the, 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 uh, the image. But most of the time you, you know, you wait about half hour to an hour. Um, sometimes it's two hours. Um, sometimes it's like in the next day, depending on the isotope. And again, the study that you're doing, uh, white blood cell labeling with, um, you know, when, when we tag people's white blood cells to find infections of unknown origin. Uh, they could inject one day and image the next because you want a good 24 hours, let's say, for the white blood cells to recirculate through the body and find this infection and then go to the go to the, the site of infection. So you want to give that at least time 
to to circulate through the body. So you'll want to image the next day as opposed to four hours or five hours later. Although you can, it's better. You know, most of the time the protocols are you know inject one day, image the next. Gotcha, gotcha. I can definitely see these being this being less invasive than you know going under the knife and opening you up for sure. But most people think of radioactive material is not a good thing. Does this have any damaging effect like on a cellular level in the body? All right. I kind of lost you in the middle of that, so if you could just re-say the question. Yeah, so most people would consider radioactive material going through the body is not a good thing. Is this having any damage from like a cellular level standpoint? Right. Excellent question, right? There's always that stigma about radioactivity in general. Um, uh, one of the main things that come to my mind when I first thought of radioactive material and how to, how to explain that it is safe is that people automatically think of like the Incredible Hulk Right with gamma radiation, or maybe Spider-Man getting bitten by a radioactive spider, mm-hmm. or even you know Homer Simpson with the rod of plutonium, you know, jumping down his back. So, the, the one thing that we need to know about nuclear medicine um, is that it is safe. Okay, um, this is this is stuff that isn't on a, a level of let's say a reactor type of energy. Okay, we're not dealing with tremendous amounts of energy that of that nature. Um, after all, we are injecting this into people, right? And the question comes, is it safe for the individual? Well, yes, it, it, it is safe, but there is, you know, some risk involved. Um, what I like to describe it as how do we judge if radioactivity is safe or not, I think of it this way. And I let everyone know that it's kind of like this. You use what type of what type of stove do you have in your house? Is it gas or electric? Electric. Okay. So in in, in New York, there's a lot of houses that have gas. Okay. So in gas stoves, they use what fire, mm-hmm. right? Do you have a do you have a fireplace in your house? Uh, no, not here. Okay. So again, same thing with fire. But let's think about fire. We utilize fire on a daily basis, right? All across the United States, everywhere, the world, fire is used. Now, is fire dangerous? Absolutely, right? But it's controllable, and it's controlled. You give, you utilize fire for what you need it for, but you got to treat it with respect. Same thing goes with radioactivity. It's, it can be very, very dangerous, right? But if you can control it and you utilize it a certain way, it's going to be very, very advantageous. And that's what we have here. Now, does it do damage? Yes. How relative is that damage? Very, very minute. There are tons and tons of studies um, before any radioactive drug gets put into market on how does it, how does the dose on each of the organ? And when we say dose, that means how detrimental or how much radiation is getting uh, to that target organ and other target organs. Because remember, although I may be imaging the heart, that doesn't mean my lungs aren't getting irradiated. It doesn't mean my bones or my muscles are getting irradiated. So we need to measure, and they are measured uh, during all the trials and whatnot, how much of, of those tissues are getting uh, radioactive uh, radiation. And one thing I do want to stress that, again, Nuclear medicine is perfectly, perfectly safe. People think, oh, you know, they'll automatically jump to like terrorism and whatnot. But can this be used? No. Nuclear medicine is absolutely safe. 
the only thing that it could be used for is to scare the public in any certain way because within a couple of hours generally a couple of hours to a couple of days whatever you were injected with for whatever study you were getting performed with is gone it's no longer in your system so for an example the like 90% of the product that I utilize here utilizes a isotope called uh, technesium 99M. It's half-life is six hours. So that means within, I don't know, two, three days, whatever was injected into you is completely out of your system. Wow. I did not realize that. I feel like it had had to have had like a a longer residual lifespan than that. That's that's crazy. And they just measured that via blood test or imaging or how's that done? So the, the, the isotope itself, so if you think about it this way, as everyone's got a fingerprint, right, and everybody's fingerprint is unique, same thing goes with isotopes. So isotopes have their own specific half-lives. It's a way that we can determine what isotope something is. If you don't know, if you don't know what you're working with, there's always a way to find out. Um, they have their own uh, half-life. They have their own energy in which they emit and also type of energy that they emit. So there's several properties that one utilize or figure out or backtrack to find out what isotope you're, you're working with if you don't already know ahead of time. So some have two hour half-life, some have six hour half-life, some of the heavier ones have eight hour half-life or rather eight day half-lives. Some have 13 hours, some have years. Right. There are some isotopes that we utilize mostly for um, camera testing and for equipment control. Um, they have five year half lives, thousand year half lives. You know, there's half lives all over the place and all different, excuse me, isotopes. So and each one of them has their own purpose. Gotcha. Gotcha. So from the other end of the spectrum, kind of going away from the, the diagnostic standpoint, actually looking at the curing uh, using this nuclear pharmacy, how, how does that work? Like, does it go in and it just obliterates that, uh, you know, cell growth that's that's adverse, or how does that execute? Right. So on a cellular level, right. So on a cellular level, radioactivity does the most damage on premature cells, right? So cells that are rapidly growing or growing rapidly cells those type of that type of a cell is where radiation has the most damage that's where a lot of mutations take place and it can it what it does is it bombards the dna strands and it disrupts them causing mutation uh, uh, mutations that ultimately can lead to cell death okay so that's on a cellular very very cellular level um in cancer cells right if you think of what cancer actually is Cancer is an overproliferation of, of a cell. Now, whether that be a red blood cell, a muscle cell, any type of organ cell, right? It's an overproliferation. So you have a growth, an overgrowth of that particular type of cell happening inside the body. Now, what a radioactive isotope could do, or, or what they call theranostics, that's a new, new realm of, of of uh, nuclear medicine is theranostics, where it's specific, specifically targeting uh, different receptor sites on, on cancer cells, where these isotopes are going uh, attached to these drugs, and they're going to these very, very, very specific cancer receptor sites. And they're attaching there, and they're literally bombarding 
these 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 cancer cells uh, with this radiation. And remember, since they're rapidly growing, right? They're they're growing very rapidly. They're they're brand new cells. There's a lot of mutations now going on inside of that, and that's where they're they're most effective. It's in the very beginning. So. Now, if you go to the flip side of that's the cancer side. Now, what if I'm a normal, regular human being, right? So what type of population would be very susceptible to radiation? Well, newborns, right? Newborns or, or you know, people growing in the growing stages. They're, they're actually very susceptible. Now, that doesn't mean that we, try, we, we don't inject uh, infants, which we do, unfortunately. There are times in which we have to... Um, produce a, a radiopharmaceutical agent for sometimes neonates. I had mm-hmm. a, you know, I've had a patient that's as young as two months old. I've had a patient that's young, uh, as young as one week old that we've had to prepare a dose for. And it gets very, very tricky uh, having to produce a activity enough to produce a, a good scan that will provide the physician with an image to help diagnose that patient, but on the flip side, be safe enough where we're not doing damage that can, that, that cannot be reversed. Right. And again, it's a, it's a game that you play, but on the, on, on when we're at that point, not doing the scan, the benefits outweigh the risks. Mm-hmm. Right. So there, there's the two flip sides to that. So on the cellular level, on the treatment side, you're going for those overproliferation of cancer cells. Sometimes they're 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 very targeted, like in theranostics. Other times, it's more of a, a um, just a, a a broad spectrum type of a treatment where you're getting both uh, healthy cells and cancerous cells. Um, and then on the other flip side, it's when we're dealing with the population of the very young, in which their cells are still growing. And, and, in, and inside the male, for, for example, just even, even uh, normal-aged males, we have to be uh, cognizant of, of our reproductive system, right? You know, sperm is constantly growing as well inside of us. So uh, that's where a lot of mutation happens in, in males and in females in the reproductive areas. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that, uh, that's always measured and monitored or should be measured and monitored whenever a woman is in the nuclear uh, field, if she becomes pregnant, um, they get a separate meter, which we call a dosimeter, that they wear on their abdomen area. And that's to make sure that we capture any type of reading uh, over a length of time that her abdomen has been received or is receiving so that we can monitor and make sure that whatever radiation she is absorbing isn't beyond what we have determined to be safe for a fetus. So, you know, we're, we're always constantly measuring. It's so crazy, man. Cause I feel like not very many people even know about this as a, as a practice. So like, how does, how does one get into this? Like when you go to the doctor that I don't ever really hear stories of people getting pointed to the, the nuclear pharmaceutical, you know, wing of the hospital. Like it's all right. pretty much the standard, you know, medicine. Right. So from a pharmacy standpoint, going through pharmacy school, I didn't learn about it until I actually came to the site that I now manage. Right. It was a, it was a rotation. Uh, when I got, when I was getting my PharmD degree, 
Um, it was a rotation that I found to be interesting. I had never heard of it. I said, hmm, let me take a look at this, see what it's all about. Uh, and you, I didn't learn that one lick. Maybe the only thing I heard was for thyroid cancer, they use, you know, I-131 for thyroid cancer. Outside of that, I had no clue that this was even a field. And nuclear pharmacy has been around since like the late 60s, early 70s. So it's not like this is just something that's brand new. This stuff has been around for a long, you know, 50 years or so. And it, it's, it's not necessarily like a, a wing of a hospital. Um, there is, there are nuclear medicine departments. There are those. So it is, it is a section of a hospital. Sometimes it's just the radio, uh, um, uh, what is it? The, uh, not nuclear medicine, but the, I can't even think of the word right now, but the, the, they have, they have certain designated departments. Um, the main one that you probably have heard of is a nuclear stress test. Mm-hmm. All right. That one is very, very familiar to, to a lot of people. That right there, I mean, if you think about it, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer, right? So what are they wanting to do? They want to image the heart. They want to see how, how well the heart is. They want to see any occlusion. They want to see if it's blocked up or whatnot. You're going to go for a nuclear stress test where they're going to stress the heart. They're going to send an agent into your heart, and they're going to see how much of your heart is lit up, how much of it is not lit up. Uh, And from that, they can determine if you have living tissue, dead tissue, uh, an occluded heart, or an open heart. You know, it's it's the vessels, that is. You know, they can even do a study to, to see about ejection fraction so how well and how how well is that heart pumping and they can measure that and all through a nuclear scan so while you're while while it's interesting that you're absolutely right people just don't necessarily know about it until a physician tells them about it right that's a patient side my side i didn't know about this until i actually went on a rotation um and i specifically sought this out now there are pharmacy programs out there Purdue being one of them, I think University of Tennessee being another, um, that actually have nuclear programs built in. I think the University of New Mexico is another. Um, they have these particular nuclear pharmacy programs built into their pharmacy school, but it's it's very small amount, very minute amount of pharmacy schools have that throughout the country. Gotcha, gotcha. Is there um is there any relation to this with like a, I believe it's called the gamma knife? Is that is that correct for brain cancer? Right. So they have gamma knife that is not necessarily the same. Um, they're not, they're not associated the same way. Um, it's a different realm. Nuclear has different subsets. So the one that I, the one that I'm dealing in with is, uh, what we call spec imaging. So single photon emitted computed tomography. (laughs) It's a lot spec, right? So that's S T single photon emitted computed tomography so that is the realm that i deal with there's also a pet so pet positron emission tomography um those are two different realms of nuclear medicine but essentially doing the same thing what what are what's utilized is two different uh types of isotopes so single photon is uh is what you're measuring in the spec it's in the name and then 
in the pet, you're dealing with a positron. So those are dealing with the type of energies and the type of molecules that are being emitted from the isotope that you're going to utilize to image. It's a, it's, it's so, so fascinating and so, so broad. It really is. You can get really, really granular with these type of, um, within the fields of nuclear. So like, what would be the ideal, you know, avatar, so to speak, for someone that would need to pursue this as a treatment option or just for diagnosis? Basically anyone that would, I mean, this is going to be much less invasive than actually cutting you open and going through you, uh, you know, open surgery. So anything that, in which case this would be, uh, you know, safer overall, that, that would pretty much be the outlet here. Right. So, <clears throat> well, you want to, you want to look at it from, if you want to look at it that way, you want to go from the most safest to the least safest, right? To get in order, what, what do I need to do in order to make sure that I can get the proper diagnosis without having to do the most invasive procedure? Mm-hmm. So if you can do a simple blood test and come up with the proper diagnosis, then perfect, right? I'll take the example now. If I can't do that, I'll take the example of a white blood cell um, study that we do. Uh, so you're, you're, you're sick, you go to the hospital, you, uh, they take a blood count, right? They do, they, 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 they take blood. And in order to determine if you're sick or not, usually you'll have what they call an elevated white count, right? Or elevated white blood cell count. Now in the body, we have different types of cells. We, we have the red blood cells and white blood cells and lymph nodes and lymph cells and all that other stuff. So the way I like to think about it, um, red blood cells are civilians and white blood cells are the soldiers, right? They are the ones that fight infection. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're going to, if we're, if you're sick and they can't figure out where, like you, let's say you don't have any, you don't have a, a red spot on your, on your abdomen or something that would indicate some type of infection there. There's no open wounds. Um, you know, you, you do, you, you're, you're not necessarily having a, a stuffy nose or a headache or a runny nose or anything like that, but you just, you, you feel absolutely terrible and you have an elevated white count of, you know, what, 20,000, let's say, usually 10,000 is the marker, but let's say you're at 20,000. They just can't figure out where this is, right? So you have an infection of unknown origin. Okay. And what they're going to do is they're going to take, they're going to, they're going to, good way to find out without having to again go into you at this point because now they, they've taken a blood test so they know there's something wrong but they still don't know right so in this situation what's the best way you don't want to go searching inside the person without cutting you know by cutting them open so let's let's develop some way in which we can figure it out without having to go in and that's where nuclear comes in it's a perfect example because what they can do here and in this particular process is they're going to withdraw x amount of blood from that patient right and then what they do is they're going to send that in a syringe to me. And then what I do is that I take that syringe filled with this patient's uh, blood. I then separate the white blood cells from the red blood cells and the plasma. I separate it all out. I then take the white blood cells and I tag it with a radioactive drug. Okay. Now this radioactive drug has been designed to enter blood cells, white blood cells specifically, um, and get trapped inside the cell so that it doesn't just go free flowing in and free flowing out. It, it, it flows in, but then gets trapped inside the cell. So now this white blood cell, this soldier has a backpack on him with a light, with a, with a flashlight that he can now, that I turn around and I send back to the hospital 
to be re-injected into that same patient. So then that soldier, now all those soldiers, all those white blood cells have these backpacks and they're going to go fight the infection. They're going to go fighting, right? Because you got the, the, the civilians, they don't know what they're doing. They're just doing their job and they, don't, they, have, they have no, no way of attacking this infection, but the soldiers do. So they're going to go in with this, with these, uh, they're going to go marching in <laughs> with the black, with the backpack, with the flashlight on it. And now the physicians the next day or some amount of hours later and be able to determine what course of antibiotic, or maybe they have to go in and remove something, who knows, but what course of antibiotic or course of treatment is then necessary, right? That is insane, man. I did not even know that was physically possible. So like that is, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> mine is blown right now because yeah, I, I that, didn't even know this was the realm. Process, that whole process when I was going to school, that right there was kind of like it sold me. You know, it was like, holy cow. <laughs> and they can dial this in with a pretty, pretty strong degree of accuracy, right? Like, is there like a percentage or standard deviation in which they can accurately determine that this is the area of infection? Now that's a very good question. I honestly, I I would say it's kind of high because we we get them quite often. So I would say it's relatively high. Although I don't have any actual data to support that. That's a good question. That's, that's I don't have crazy, any man. like hard numbers on it. But I we get them. We get we get those procedures every week. You know, I, I do maybe three three procedures a week on that. And it, I mean, it's it's their own blood as well. So it's like much much less right. invasive than actually going in with a scalpel and opening people up and then subjecting them to potentially more infection. Right, exactly. So you're utilizing, and that's what, that's what's really, really cool about it because, you know, we, we're, we, we have this tendency of maybe thinking that, you know, once blood is exposed outside the body, it's not very viable, meaning it doesn't live very long. They die rel- relatively fast, which to a certain extent is true. But there is uh, some type of viability to those cells. How long can they survive outside the body now this entire process it has to be it's not necessarily uh um, short it has to be you know it's got to be relatively fast right but it's not so fast in that it has to happen within like 30 minutes Mm -hmm. not so much there's a there's a five-hour window believe it or not a five-hour window uh, somewhat, some may argue six, but I, I like to be on the conservative side and say five. There's a five-hour window um, in which once that blood is drawn outside from the body and placed into the syringe, we have five hours to do the process, well, deliver it to my pharmacy for me to do the process, label the blood, separate the blood, label the blood, prepare the blood in, in the package, get everything out the door back to that customer and then have that customer inject into back into that patient. That's a five hour turnaround, right? Now that's the max. Generally speaking, that can, depending on where, how far the customer is in certain traffic conditions, I can get it there in three and a half or four hours, which is even better. You know, you always want to make it as close as possible because the better, the better, the, the shorter the time frame, the more viable the cells are. So are there clinics and pharmacies around like every state or do people need to kind of travel to these larger metropolitan areas where this is more of a thing? I mean, how common are these? Right. So I would I don't know if there are nuclear pharmacies in every state. I wouldn't 
I, I don't know that number. I would say there's at least one in every state. Um, it just depends on where in the state it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you here, and uh, I'm from New York. I'm on Long Island. Um, I have there's my pharmacy and four other nuclear pharmacies within my area. Um, in New York, in in my New York area, not to mention in the entire state, there's there's like three or four or five other pharmacies in New York State, not not to include the four that are in my immediate area. Um, but again, we're a very highly metropolitan area. You know, Long Island, I'm I'm 20 minutes, 30 minutes, a half hour, depending on traffic from the city, uh, from Manhattan, and you have a whole bunch of places in Manhattan, all these different hospitals, and Long Island's got tons and tons of hospitals and tons and tons of cardiac clinics. You know, uh, we service some of the top-notch hospitals, heart hospitals here on Long Island and in the city, and they've got tons and tons of patients every single day. And again, there are there are three other uh, main competitors that I deal with, uh, but four other pharmacies. One of the competitors got two pharmacies that are that's in close proximity to me. So there, there's a there's a significant amount of, of patients and dosing going out every single day just in my area. Um, there are some rural areas that you know you may have to travel uh, to get to a to get to a hospital that has a, a center, a nuclear and a medicine department. You know, or even uh, a pharmacy then. There is, there is no connection. There is no connection with a, patient, with a patient to the nuclear pharmacy. So let me, let me state it this way. I'm not seeing the patient come in and drop off a prescription to have a scan done. Mm-hmm. Just like you would like go to a CVS and drop off a prescription and then 10, 15, 20 minutes later you have your pills. That that doesn't happen. It doesn't work this way. I'm getting I'm getting the orders directly from the physician or the hospital or the the technologist that works for the physician or the the office manager that that works at the doctor's office. I'm getting the order from them to produce the drug for the patient. So uh, that's one that's one area that's major difference between traditional pharmacy and nuclear pharmacy is that I don't necessarily have the connection with the with the patient. Is there like a lot of competition there with something being so cutting edge? Is there like a lot of, uh, you know, just people in different pharmacies, nuclear pharmacies, receptive to helping other nuclear pharmacies like be on top of their A-game, or is it pretty cutthroat? It is cutthroat, I would say. Yeah, we're all we're all grasping at each other, man. We're all going at each other. Um, we all know the industry. We all know the business. Um, we all want more business nuclear has its 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 demons in which you know you're going after you're going after competitors you're going after their customers you're wanting their business it's like anything else really you want you it it, look at it this way we're all producing the same type of product Mm -hmm. okay we're their system maybe is is you know probably the same system maybe that i'm doing system maybe is a cardiac cardiac agent their agent is the same agent as mine um, you know, 99% of the time. So what differentiates their product from my product? Well, the quality of the people behind it, the quality of the brand behind it, you know, the, the personnel that are preparing it, you know, these things are the small little things that we try to utilize to get to our customers to, to utilize our product or our services compared to our competitors. And that's exactly what they do on their end. 
right? It's the same type of tactics going back. And then there's, of course, always the price war. You know, who, who, who's got the better pricing? Who's, who's got the better uh, deal, so to speak? Um, and and it, it, it's just the same as any other industry that has uh, businesses that are selling the same type of product. Right. What makes an Apple computer different from a Microsoft? What, you know, Microsoft computer, what take what makes a, an HP different from a Lenovo? Why they're both operating on Windows. Right. So what what's the I'm both I'm getting the same software. What hard? Why do I need to go with one over the other? It's the same thing. Who's got the better deal? Who's got the better hardware? Who's got the better people behind it? Right. Same type of idea. And I'm assuming a perfectly formulated radioactive isotope injections probably not the cheapest thing on the market it's not the most expensive but depending on the study remember it's about the study um yeah. what are you looking at something remember you, you when when in business right you know this better than anyone you got supply and demand so with us if the demand is really high um and, and there's a lot of it you're probably uh, meaning there's a lot of studies that need to be done. The price on it probably isn't going to be a premium, is not going to be a premium. But if the, if there aren't that many studies of something, that means it's kind of rare, mm -hmm. then the premium on that drug is going to be really, really high, right? Because now the therapy has got to be very specific to that type of study. And if there really isn't that much of it, then the price of that particular study is going to probably be high because you're going to need a special type of an agent to do it. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes total sense. I want to switch gears a little bit. I haven't really talked about this on any of my platforms because I, I don't know how to speak intelligently on it because I just frankly don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But I feel like you're in the midst of all this space. So okay. what is the word on the street with regard to like the coronavirus? That's obviously the topic of discussion <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, so coronavirus. Now, again, my personal opinion uh, on this, uh, the as far as I know, my company, we we're, we don't have necessarily an official stance other than we're listening to what else is out there in our agencies. But from a personal uh, standpoint on this, um, I I don't think it's as 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 hyped up as it should. I think it's more hyped up than it really should be. Now, that I'm not necessarily try trying to take away from the severity of the disease itself or the infection itself. Obviously, it's killed you know thousands of people at this point. It's infected hundreds of thousands of people at this point. Um, I, all the research that I've done and read and looked up on, I don't, I don't understand why it's getting so why people are getting so so crazy um, about it. From my perspective, I think uh, a reason why it's gotten very much in the headlight uh, highlights is number one where it came from how how it was discovered and how quickly it's it's spread okay and and that every and now it's on everyone's radar so i think the flu and very you know the flu has various strains mm -hmm. right there's always different strains of the flu the flu on average kills a lot more people than this has right every single year oh and, and I, i'll let this I'll give you, since I brought up the flu, the flu shot, right? Everyone, all, all physicians, right? Every healthcare provider is telling you, you know, you should always get your flu shot. should always get your flu shot. I, being in the, being a pharmacist and being in the pharmacy realm, I've only gotten the flu shot once. 
And that was because I had to when I had my my firstborn. Mm -hmm. The hospital wouldn't let me go see my kid unless I had a flu shot. Other than that, I've never had it. And the reason why is when you're looking at strains of of these viruses, is it, it's very difficult to produce a vaccine for something you don't know that's out there. So the vaccine that you get is not going to be the vaccine for the flu that comes out that year. I mean, it may, but 99% of the time, the vaccine that you're getting is flu is for a flu that happened in the past, usually last year's strain, because they, they can't predict which one's going to be the most prominent that year, right? So I always took the, you know, once I learned that and I had that thought in my head, I said to myself, well, what's the point? What's the point of getting the flu shot? Because I, you know, you always said, it's always a disclaimer. You can still get the flu even though you've got the flu, flu vaccine. Well, why is that the case? Well, that's because the vaccine you got wasn't for the flu strain that you just contracted. Mm -hmm. So now you're now you're you're you got a shot and you got sick. So it didn't do you any good. So when we look at the coronavirus now, the reason why I don't know if you know, in the, in the very beginning, you saw that it was coronavirus. Everything was coronavirus. Now they've changed the vernacular and now they've they're now since they've identified it, it's now what that COVID-19. Right. It's COVID-19 because the coronavirus, just like the flu has different subsets. So the coronavirus, there are multiple strains of the corona, okay? Mm -hmm. And and this just happens to be uh, uh, 19, right? They've labeled it 19. So this is the 19 strain, let's just put it that way. If you look at it in, in relation to what, we, what I would say parallels the flu, it's a nasty flu virus. Right. You can get a flu and that flu, if you get a nasty flu virus, you're going to be on your ass for, for uh, a week. Like mm -hmm. you're going to get knocked out. You'll be in bed for three of those five days, just completely incapacitated. Okay. I think this is where we're in the realm with this particular virus. That's how I see it. Now, there is a little bit of a difference. And the reason why it's having a higher uh, death rate in the elderly population is because the virus is an upper respiratory uh, virus. It affects the upper respiratory, whereas the flu will kind of attack the entire body. So it's really putting you to bed everywhere. Mm -hmm. The corona is attacking the upper respiratory. So you're, you know, you're talking about breathing. You're talking about air, airways. You're talking about congestion. You're talking about all those things that, I mean, we need, we obviously need oxygen. So if you're having a tough time, if you've already, let's say you're a smoker, or you've already got some type of lung impairment, or your immune system is already crap, you're you're very very much susceptible to to this to this type of virus. And that, and since it's a really strong, or at least a stronger uh, um, uh, strain of the corona, it's gonna it's gonna hit you really really hard. And that's why, if you look at the at the population that has had the most deaths, you're looking at individuals that are 60 and and 60 and over. And if you look at where it actually came out of uh, the Hunan province in, in China, the, the working class in, in, in China and the working conditions is not is not the greatest. And I would I would I would go to suspect that the immune system of that community and those people there are probably not the best. And I wonder how much they smoke, 
Um, you know, smoking is very prevalent in the Asian population. And I wonder how much uh, they are in that area were, were, were smoking. Um, how many of the individuals that did die, unfortunately, from this uh, were smokers? How many of them already were in such poor conditions and their immune system already disrupted and weakened to a point where they, they had no chance against this? You know, um, I think that's where that's where it should be concentrated. Um, you know, President Trump, I think what was yesterday or the day before, went on uh, went on the, the, the TV and he and he sent out his um, his address. You know, he did a really good thing. I thought it was low hanging fruit. It should have been done from the beginning was the nursing homes. God, you got to protect them, you know, protect the nursing homes, protect the neonates, you know, protect protect the kids because they're they're very susceptible at this time. You know, you don't have a. The kids don't have a fully functioning immune system and the elderly are on the decline with their uh, immune system. Right. So those two populations we want to protect the most. Everyone else in between, you know, unless you have any of those conditions, again, any lung impairment, um, your high smoker, which, again, you, you've got lung impairment already. You've got maybe a lung disease, um, anything like that. You're, you're probably going to be fine. You're going to get sick. If you get it, you'll probably get sick. I mean, there are some people that have it and are asymptomatic, meaning they don't they don't exhibit any symptoms, right? That they don't have a runny nose, they don't have a scratchy throat. I, I I'm going to say that those type of individuals, you probably will get sick because it's a nasty virus, but you'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the incubation period of 14 days, I may I think is probably a little excessive, um, but. Nonetheless, I think it's being blown out a little too much. Uh, you know, social media and the media itself on TV, they ramp up a lot of things, in my opinion. And this, I think, is added to it. I mean, what was it? I don't know if you're a big sports guy, but the, the NBA suspended its season. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they found two people, two guys, two that had it, that got contracted positive. I mean... I mean, wow, two guys out of the whole NBA, and now you're going to suspend the season? Now the, now the college tournament, you know, March Madness, you know, basketball is, is almost done. Like, there's not going to be any more basketball. And I'm not sure since I've been on the podcast with you here, but the NHA, the NHL was supposed to announce whether they're going to continue their season or not. And the MLB is next. Like, you know, they're suspected to, to maybe postpone the, the season, you know, starting it later. I think all of this is just blown out. Like you're, you're telling people not to go to MSG to watch, you know, a basketball game or a Ranger game, or, I mean, guys, we got to kind of live our lives, you know, be cautious, do the right thing, wash your hands. You go to the bathroom, wash your hands. That's common sense. You got to sneeze, you cover your mouth. You got to cough, you cover your mouth. Um, you know, people go to work sick. I hate to say it, but just about all the time. And most people who have really good immune systems are going to survive this and they're going to be just fine. It's those special populations that we really, really need to, to look after because of the specific way that the virus attacks and because of how strong it is. Yeah. It, outside of that, yeah, outside of that, I think it are going to be fine. It is crazy, man, because, like, I mean, even even with, like, the, the bodybuilding competitions that I'm prepping for right now, many of them have had to cancel I've got a client that's competing this weekend. Her her show just got canceled, and she found out this week, which is, I mean, she's been prepping for 16 weeks. And, like, I obviously don't want to be selfish and say that, you know, my 
prep is prevailing over people's health. Like I want to do what's best for the community. Right. I feel like right. Yeah, that and, that, and that's always the, that's always the, the balance, right? That's always the the struggle that everyone has. I mean, you want to go that way? We have the Arnold, right? Look at what happened with the Arnold. Yeah, yeah. The Arnold, the Arnold draws in thousands, thousands of people, right? That that one week a weekend, not forget about just the amount of people there. But the money that goes into that, that into Columbus, they look forwards. They look forward to that every single year, right? Is there and economy? the fact that they, yeah, the economy exactly. The, the, all those businesses, they, they they bank on that. That's they they'll come in. They, oh, come March, I know I'm getting this amount of people coming in. You know, now I I I got I it's it's like a give and take. Well, that went in, right? It was they they still went on with the shows. They still went on with the competition. So if you were a competitor and associated with that competitor and within like you were essential, quote unquote, essential personnel, you you are allowed to go. Now, everyone else, no. I've seen tons of YouTube videos of an empty expo room. That room is ginormous. You can never understand how large that room is until you've seen it on YouTube completely empty, right? Pictures of it completely empty. It's un. It's un- Believable. Now you look at that. All those competitors. Imagine, just imagine, if they were told that that competition was canceled. All that prep. You guys are amazing in my in my opinion. Anyone who preps for, I have a buddy that's going through a prep right now for a show in Vegas, and the amount of hard work, dedication, pinpoint accuracy, certain things need to be with diet and training. All of this leading up to this one week, one day, and just to have it pulled from underneath you, I guarantee you, Arnold was begging the governor not to cancel that portion. I mean, because you had to think of it. Look at the compromise. They were ready. They were ready to pull the whole plug. Yeah. You know, there's so, but there's so much that goes involved to this. You can't just take it away from people. And I, I think, I guess, in in hindsight, it's it's the right move. You know, you, you allow the competitors to go because, again, they, they are, they're there for the long haul. They were there for a reason. They were doing this hard work to get to that point. And the Arnold is different, if I'm – correct me if I'm wrong, but the Arnold is different from a lot of other shows, even from the Olympia, in that it's, it's an invite only. Is, is it not? I don't, I don't want to speak – I don't know for sure on that, but it is definitely one of the more prestigious shows and – yeah, these people that have been prepping for that show in particular, I mean, it's not a trivial thing. Like, they've been prepping for years. Yeah, and to take it away because yeah, I think it, I think it would have just been detrimental in a whole bunch of – I mean, for maybe the person that's returning or or a person that's going in – or going it again and, and, and that was invited again, maybe not so much. But for the, let's say that, that there's an individual in there that has uh, – uh, it's their first time. And if I'm and if I'm right, they, they were invited the first time they were actually invited to the Arnold just to have it taken away from them. I can only imagine how detrimental that could have been. So I, in the end, I'm glad they were able, excuse me. I'm glad they were able to uh, get the, at least the competition portion out of it. Same thing with like the, the strongman events and everything. Um, I'm glad they were able to get all that out. Um, it's sad that, you know, the expos, but again, that it, I guess if you look at the grand scheme of things, what's more important, right? People's health as opposed to money. That was probably uh, a, a, a best scenario call. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just it's just mind-boggling how much of these decisions, these these really big decisions, are being made based off of a a large degree of 
fear mongering I think brought on by social media. Now there's definitely oh. I don't want to downplay the the adverse effects, the risk, the desk by any means because that's all very very you know catastrophic, and I, my heart goes out to anybody that's been affected directly for sure. But I mean, Absolutely. like like you said, the flu the flu kills more people. The, kill, the flu will kill more people. I think the main difference is that the flu happens every year. Like people have flu season, they know about it. It's there. It's in the conversation. Whereas this is just new. It's like this trivial new thing that nobody really has their head wrapped around yet. And because of that, there's just so much more unknown uncertainty and just you know fear that comes with that unknown, and it gets hyped up a lot more. Absolutely. You know, you go back just a couple of years, you had the what they call the avian flu, right? The H1N1, right? Oh, my God. The avian flu, again, came from the Asian markets, right? Came from Asia. The avian flu. Everyone was floundering about that. They were calling that a, a pandemic. That was nothing. I know an individual that had gotten it. He was sick. He had a runny nose. He had a fever. Three days later, he was fine, but he was tested positive for it. Matter of fact, he got it when he went and visited his wife's family in the Ukraine. They came, he got it while he was over there, you know, and he came back with it. And like he said, he goes, I had it uh, three days. It was gone. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't as terrible as, as people portrayed it to be go back even further. Um, I think it was like, uh, what was it? 2002, 2003 SARS, right? That was another one. Now SARS, I may be wrong on this, but if I, if my, if I remember correctly, SARS, I believe, is a subset of the corona because SARS de- dealt with respiratory. It was mm-hmm. a res- respiratory virus, same as the corona, uh, COVID-19. So I, 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 if I, if, again, if I may, I may have read it wrong. They may have just been passed torn that they, 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 they. Oh, I lost you. Can you respiratory. So it, 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 it's, 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 I think, like you had mentioned, you know, you, your heart goes out, you know, to all those who are infected, who have lost loved ones. Um, at the same time, I think that the, there is uh, a hype about it because it is new. It's fresh. We've never seen it or heard of it in the way that it's out there now. You know, tuberculosis. Everyone's heard of tuberculosis, right? Everyone has heard of a TB shot, right? Mm-hmm. Tuberculosis killed thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people every year every year and we go about living our lives you know perfectly normal like i don't worry about getting tb like ever but it's out there right it's what? out there so correct me if it, i'm wrong but isn't very the, isn't the coronavirus more uh stable for longer in the absence of a host like Whereas most viruses need a host to be able to survive more than a few hours, the coronavirus has been in, known to last days. Is that is that totally hearsay or is that correct? So I only just read uh, an article that said that it's it's actually viable X amount of time in air. So that's outside of a host. I don't know. I haven't done any validity re- research into, into that because I just saw that uh, yesterday evening or this morning. Um, when looking through the news clippings. Um, so I don't know. I don't really know that if that's the case. I mean, I, again, I have to do more research on that. That's very interesting. That just goes to show how potent the strain is, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's interesting, man. Like I, again, like we said, we, we, we heart goes out to everybody that's been affected, but it, it's an interesting illustration of human nature. Like when people are poised with this kind of 
conundrum that we're faced with now, it, it really emphasizes how, as a species, we are so much more of a reactive species than a proactive species. Like, you see so many people, you know, buying all this, you know, toilet paper, hand sanitizer, face masks out of stock, but you don't see anybody working on improving their immune system and their overall health when times are good, you know? Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. And just to just... You know, you mentioned the masks. Oh, let me let me let me just say something to people here. You know, everyone's wearing masks. You know, I look just the other just yesterday. I'm driving home from work and I happen to look over at the guy at a red light and he's wearing a mask. Now, I don't know anything about this individual, but I can probably guarantee you that he's not necessarily sick or I would I would think he's not sick because if he was sick at this point, he's probably in bed. Right. So I'm, I'm assuming this individual's not sick, but he's wearing a mask. Now, the masks, uh, let me just say this to your, to your listeners and your viewers, it is useless if you are not sick, okay? It does not prevent you from contracting the disease or the virus or the illness, okay? The point of a mask is to prevent you from spreading the illness not the other way around, okay? Yeah. It doesn't do anything. It allows stuff to come in. It's supposed to trap things going out. That's why we wear masks in my facility when we're doing our compounding. We don't want any of our, 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 our bacteria from our mouth when we talk, when we cough, when we sneeze, to go into the products that we're making because after all, they're being injected into people. It's going literally right into the bloodstream. That's why we wear masks. That's why we wear hairnets. That's why we wear gloves, booties, and gowns, right? We don't want to shed anything onto these products that we're making that are going into people. It's coming off of us into the atmosphere. Now, the masks need to be able to be breathable, right? You got to be able to breathe. So it's allowing air to come in. And that's where stuff can come through, okay? It's not trapping it the other way around. Um, so all these people that bought masks thinking that it's going to prevent them from getting the disease that if you didn't get sick and you wore a mask, you're just lucky. It's not, it's not a causality. You can still get, still get sick, even though you wear a mask, just wanting to throw that out there. And that right there is a perfect example of what you mentioned that we are so reactionary. You know, we, we, Humans, it's like the baby. You tell the baby, don't touch the burning stove. And what does the kid do? He, even though you told had touched the burning stove and burned his hand, and he said, ouch, and he pulled his hand away, and you turn to him, and you look at him and see, I told you so, and he doesn't do it again, right? Or at least you would hope he doesn't do it again. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. You're absolutely right. We should be... Why is it that the person who has a heart attack, all of a sudden, after surviving the heart attack, changes their lifestyle in order not to have a heart attack? Why didn't you change your lifestyle knowing when someone told you, you know what, you're on a good pace to have a heart attack? How about you change your attitude to not have the heart attack in the first place? Why wait? Why take that chance? I'm not. I don't. You know, I don't want to do that. I mean, there's a balance. You want to still live your life. But you also want to make sure you don't have a heart attack. 
<laughs> yeah, totally, totally agree, man. And that's why I'm so passionate about like the, the lifestyle that I've chosen to live as an individual and like the nutritional choices that I make because they're not like this crazy sacrifice. Like I enjoy everything that I do. I enjoy the training. I enjoy the keto diet. Like I just fall into that naturally. And I know and feel very confident in saying that that is probably the single best thing I could do from an immune improvement standpoint, just from an overall well-being and health standpoint. Like I'm going to put so much more emphasis and weight in that than any, you know, post-apocalyptic reactive steps that I can take. Absolutely. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, when I, when I started my keto journey, um, I did it, I, I've been doing keto or variations of keto for the past, uh, two and a half, three years now. Um, it was, it was something that I fell right in line with. Um, the research that is coming out of it seems promising. Um, the, the, the way my body reacted to it was very positive. Um, my, you know, the people that I've, believe it or not, that I've shown it to and coached along, they've, uh, seen positive results out of it. Um, it, it, there is, there is a lot to be said, uh, on the, the, the information coming out and the research coming out on inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. Inflammation to me is the biggest, the biggest thing that our bodies need to, or our minds and uh, that we need to pay attention to. Okay. If we are in a chronic state of inflammation and we're not aware of it, that's where the danger comes, right? Um, heart disease isn't necessarily high cholesterol. Okay. That information is so 1970, right? They're, they're, they're 1960. That high cholesterol is not not, and I'm going to say this, and again, as a pharmacist, this is my opinion, but I'm going to say that is not a driver for heart disease, okay? The driver is inflammation. Inflammation of the blood vessels causes damage to the interior wall of the heart vessel. That damage then collects free-floating cholesterol. The cholesterol didn't cause it. It was inflammation that caused the damage. The damage is then collects the cholesterol, and that's where we get plaque from. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 you can't have – that was the problem with the studies, that they, were, they had causalities, right? They were saying that this caused that, where it wasn't a true causality. And, you know, the, the, the studies were, were hand-chosen. It was, it was a flawed – flawed uh, retrospective flawed study because it was hand chosen all these different cohorts and it was just it was just done wrong right from the very beginning but that aside inflammation to me is the main driver and and there are there are everyone is different and i'm going to preface that because not everyone tends to have success with with everything right there's always well i tried this and it didn't work okay that that's fine but there are there there are a lot of people that will tend to 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 respond to uh, certain things. So I think that in our realm, where we limit the amount of carbohydrates that our bodies have on a daily basis, allows our bodies to maintain a very low inflammation state. 
Now, that comes from the food. We're, we're obviously in, introducing inflammation in other areas. When we, we work out, we have stressful times, right? When we emotionally are stressful or we're nervous, those are inflammations of different, different aspects. But those, I feel, our body is naturally uh, uh, designed to handle, mm-hmm. right? Cortisol levels, we're naturally, that's a natural response. You know, the fight or flight, that's a natural response that our bodies are designed to be able to handle. Our diet, we're designed a certain way, okay? We're designed a certain way to handle foods, but there's so much food and different compounds now in these foods that have been, that have, that are created that our bodies aren't necessarily, I would say, 100% able to, to handle. And with it, although we may be able to digest, you know, digestion doesn't always necessarily mean that it's healthy or that it's okay for the body. Digestion is just our body breaking whatever we ate down to its simplest form and then extracting what it couldn't, right? That's all digestion is. Mm-hmm. It's, what, it's what happens in the process and what our bodies actually absorb and the, the chemical reactions that our body has to those type of foods. I think fat is something that we are, again, you know, going back to chemistry, you have essential fatty acids, essential amino acids. There are no essential carbohydrates, all right? There is no essential carbohydrate. Yes, the body is a glucose-driven body. I'm not denying that. The brain needs glucose. But there is a mechanism that the body has, again, a natural mechanism that our body has in order to produce what it needs in order to function. You know, you'll have, you'll have that's why that's also seasons in fruit, right? The, the, the earth has a certain way, has a certain way of building and then uh, dying of certain plants and vegetables and, and fruits. And s- same thing with the body. I feel that we're, uh, we, we, we are designed, depending on where you are from, where you are in the world, right? If you're from a Caribbean island where it's very, very sunny, I guarantee you those individuals that are their gen- genetic makeup, they could probably handle fruit or fructose better than someone that comes from Iceland mm-hmm. okay, or Greenland. That's just my, I, I'm, I'm sure there's probably some data to support that, but I'm not 100%, but that is my suspicion and my, and my uh, uh, opinion on that. You know, our bodies are designed a certain way to handle based upon where we are. And again, it's all about controlling inflammation and the amount of it and what your individual body can handle. Um, it, it's just amazing where we've come. And, and believe it, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I'll say this. We're at a stage in history when it comes to health where it's a very, very heated topic. And um, in my response to the, to the email that, that was sent out a couple of weeks ago, I think there's so many polarizing opposites on every topic and every spectrum now that it's hard to kind of weed everything out because everyone's trying to pull you in their direction, mm-hmm. right? You got, you got the, the zero-carb industry or, or, you know, the carnivores, they're simply saying no carbs, no vegetables, right? Okay. That, that, that may be good for you, but it might not be best for me. And then you have all the way over here, you have the the vegetarians and the vegans that are like saying no meat, only vegetables and plants, nothing processed by animals. It's like, okay, maybe for you that, that kind of works, you know, but where are the people in the middle? And I think with the ketogenic lifestyle, there is that happy medium, right? You can have 
you can have a carbohydrate, but in a specific form and in a specific amount. Um, but you get a lot more of the stuff that our bodies are, are more readily uh, able to handle and digest. And I think that's where a lot of people uh, uh, really go off the deep end. Um, and it also comes down to lifestyle. Like you said, if, if, if you're looking at an individual who, you know, who's doing a bodybuilding contest, or uh, versus a ver- versus an individual who's really just doing a regular nine to five and doesn't necessarily uh, move a lot in their job, their spectrum of food, even on the ketogenic diet, is going to be vastly different, right? You're not going to necessarily need as much of one area as, as, as another, given the individual's energy expenditure. So, you know, even in that realm, there's always, it's always dependent on the individual. Yeah, totally, one hundred percent agree, man. I mean, there, it is. To, it's very naive for any one group to dogmatically think their way is better than any other person's way. Like that is just very, very small-minded, and you're living in an echo chamber that's just a false dichotomy. For me, it's like I've done high carb, I've done high protein, I've done you know, very high veg. I've tried them all. And I've found what works really well for me. And I have to assume that I'm not the only one in the world that works well for. So I've committed myself to illustrating what's worked really well for me and helping others to try and fine-tune that for themselves to make it work for them as an individual. And I feel like, you know, I have a very open mind. I'm totally open to the higher protein versus high fat debates. Like I'm trying to learn and experiment and really dive into things. But I'm totally okay in accepting the fact that there is not a one-size-fits-all for humans. Now that said, I do think as a as an overall, you know, the ketogenic diets with an emphasis on proper macronutrient ratios within a certain sphere and a priority towards high quality foods, like the the calories and the macros are great, but having an emphasis towards micronutrients and where those calories are coming from, you know, food sourcing and whatnot is is of utmost importance. So when you have that dialed in, that is truly a very anti-inflammatory diet. Like I can notice that on a very acute level from something as as broad stroke as like squats, like my knees from an inflammation standpoint, that there's just much less inflammation when I don't have all the heavily processed carbohydrates. And if that's happening on such an acute broad spectrum, you have to really wonder what's happening, you know, on a cellular level internally compounded over years and years and years. So I feel very good about the fact that I'm eating the way I do with an emphasis on, you know, quality f- sourced food with that macronutrient ratio for the long haul. And I feel like most people would probably benefit from that as well. But I'm not ever going to say that if you don't do that, you're wrong or you're evil or you know nothing. Like people need to accept the fact that there is no one size fits all. Right. Hey, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, my coming from my, my father was a physician, uh, when he when uh, before he passed away he was he was a doctor and you know me going through pharmacy school i i've been in 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 medicine you can say my entire life and the one thing that uh we you know medicine tries to do and the and my father would always say you know medicine isn't necessarily a science although we utilize science to develop medicine medicine is an art and um they always say it's the art of medicine, right? Not the science of medicine necessarily. It's the art of medicine. Medicine is an art. And to that point, what are you trying to do? You're trying to have the individual be 
that the healthiest that they can be, right? Not everyone has the, uh, I hate to say mental, like mental fortitude or discipline or even desire, right? I'll even say that, even desire to be as healthy as they possibly can be. So what do we, what do, what do people like you, uh, Danny Vega, uh, and other people in the industry need to really focus in on is having people see a different point of view from where they currently are to get them to move the needle in the healthier direction, right? And that's where our open-mindedness needs to be, right? We need to, we need to change the population, the needle in the right direction of getting more healthy, showing them that this, this way or this idea or this concept may be better, more beneficial to you than your current path. Given if that individual is A, sick, has an illness, uh, or B, is wanting something different, right? They notice, they feel, like you said, you can feel, you can feel better. You can, you're dialed in. You have, you're very attuned to yourself right now and, and any food or, or, or even, I'll even say environmental uh, distress that's going on. You can feel it. You're that attuned. There are those that, that have no idea what that is. They just, they just know they feel like crap all the time. So we need to be able to open their mind to be to see that you know what perhaps this is the reason why i'm not saying it's the reason why but there's good evidence to show that this may be the cause of all your aches and pains and diabetes and so on and so forth that that you may be having so if you're open to it and you want to change because remember you can't force anybody to change if you want to change and have a potential of getting better and seeing better results then maybe trying, you know, this lower carbohydrate, higher fat idea is, is the way to go. So I, I think that's the whole art of medicine that people are missing. You know, it's, it's the trend, but it's just about getting the art, the art of medicine to get the patient to want to move to, to becoming more healthy. Totally agree, man. Like I, I am very much so an extremist like i'm trying to optimize to the hundredth percent nth degree like i would eat dirt if it was guaranteed to make me perform better i don't expect or ask everybody else to have that same mindset all i'm suggesting is that let's move the needle ever so slightly so that it's having a net positive overall like if you're at and you don't maintain in life you're either getting better or worse so like rather than going from 50% to 49% to 48%. Let's go from 50 to 50 to 1 to 50 to 2. You know, just get mm. a little bit better each day and then have that right. compound over the rest of your life so that you're actually experiencing a net positive for not only yourself, but from an unselfish perspective, like an epigenetic effect on your kids, their kids. Like, let's make the human race better. Right. Absolutely. Totally agree. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. Love it, man. Well, listen, you probably got to save some lives or something, so I don't want to take up any more of your time. But where can people go to find out more about you and just dive into the world of nuclear pharmacy if they want to learn more? Right. So uh, if you want to learn about nuclear pharmacy, technically you can just really Google uh, nuclear pharmacy. There's a whole bunch of information out there. Uh, you can check out my, my company, uh, Jubilant Radio Pharma. Um, that's whom I work for. Uh, me, and personally, you can... Uh, you know, my email is puba5000 at gmail.com. If you ever have 
a question or you want to know more about nuclear pharmacy, I'd be definitely happy to answer answer any of those questions. Um, I'm on Facebook, Chris Stanton, and uh, the Stanton Approach on Instagram. Love it, love it. I'll link out to those. Uh, I really appreciate it, man. Like I, I didn't really know what to expect from this conversation. We've only corresponded via email, and I had no idea what nuclear pharmacy was prior to this conversation, but I've learned a ton, and I value everything you said. No problem, man. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me to have this avenue to bring it out there to the masses. Thank you, sir. You bet, man. Have a good one. You too, man.